Please go ahead and take your Bibles out and open them to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11. There we will resume our study this morning. We'll actually finish up chapter 11 today. Um, before we get into that, I, I don't know if I was the only one who heard it, but while Richard was praying, it sounded like Darth Vader descended behind the curtain back there. Did anybody else hear that noise? Okay. <laughs> I, was, I was started laughing. I thought, this looks great because the senior pastor is down on the front row giggling while the other pastor on staff is praying. I was not laughing at Richard's prayer. I thought that Darth Vader was about to come out behind that curtain. Um, Anyway, that has nothing to do with anything else we're doing today, so we will leave that there. Uh, go ahead and, as, if you haven't yet, go ahead and turn over to Daniel chapter 11. As you know, we've been making our way through the book of Daniel. We are now very close to being done. We have looked through chapter 11 and, and talked and kind of seen all about the historical significance of the king of the north and the king of the south with the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid dynasties being at war with one another and how several hundred years before that happened that that had been made known through prophecy in the book of Daniel. As I've often said, I've been operating from a early date writing, you know, uh, around 600-ish B.C. that the book of Daniel was penned, and so we're looking at, or, or uh, through a time frame, and so we're looking at historical events that are historical to us, but of course for Daniel, these things were future. Well, today we're in the last paragraph of chapter 11, and we're going to get into that here in just a moment, but I will tell you, in, in, in terms of a complex chapter, which is Daniel 11, is highly complex, these last, this last paragraph is probably the most complex paragraph in this particular chapter, primarily because of the ambiguity. Whereas with earlier uh, portions of Daniel 11, there's some clear-cut historical significance that connect to specific historical events, whereas in Daniel uh, 11, 36 through 45, it's not as clear-cut that way. So what we're dealing with something is a bit more broad, and we're going to get into exactly what that is here in just a few moments. So this morning, we have, we're kind of picking back up where we left off. We are going to start right here in Daniel chapter, 30, or Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 36. So follow along with me in your Bibles now as we read together. Daniel 11, 36 through 45, beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and he shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortress with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape." He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and to devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents 
between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please now pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, its power, its truth, its depth, its beauty. Oh, Father, may it be like an arrow, a straight arrow that shoots right to our hearts, that it would pierce us deeply with its truth, that we would be renewed and transformed more and more. Through Christ we pray. Amen. If I say the name D-Day to you, most of us in this room, our minds immediately go to a specific event in history. Specifically, uh, June 6th, 1944 is the day that we think of. That's etched in our minds because we've read about it, we've seen documentaries, we've learned about it in school. It's just that particular day, the reason it's called D-Day, D stands for days, but also because it was kind of what they would call the day of days. Something powerful happened on June 6th, 1944. In fact, what happened was the largest amphibious attack in military history. It was on a grand scale. It was vast. It was huge and encompassed more than one country. And so when we speak of invasions from the sea, yes, we can think about Vikings, we can think about all sorts of other things, but we can't speak about invasions from the sea without thinking about D-Day, the day of days when the largest invasion from the sea came. When we, we think of war, in fact, when we think of war, we can't really think of war without thinking of wars like World War II just because of the grand scale and cost of these battles, these wars, these campaigns. It was costly in lives. It was costly in materials. It was costly in money. It was grand. It was large scale. And so the World War II is some, it's known to some as the War of Wars. The Day of Days happened on the War of Wars. So you're getting something, what, what we take away from that is this is not run-of-the-mill war stuff. This is something spectacular. This is on a different level, these types of battles and wars, especially this one. Well, when we come to the end of Daniel 11, what are we looking at here? Well, we're not just looking at the scourge of Antiochus IV. We are in some senses, sure, but we're actually looking at a scourge that goes beyond Antiochus, a scourge of evil that Daniel is telling us about that gets to the heart of the battles that you and I face. In fact, if we want to call this something, we'll call it the scourge of scourges because this is a fight not with a man, not with flesh and blood, but with the power of darkness at work in the world, with the power of, to use New Testament terminology, with the po- against the power of Antichrist. It seems very clear to me that that's what we're dealing with in this last portion of Daniel 11. And as I said to you a moment ago, it's fair to say this is a greatly or a a very complex chapter and a very complex paragraph. The language is ambiguous, trying to pin it down, trying to mark exactly what Daniel is driving at. And so uh, because of the ambiguity, because of the things in here that are not as specific as they have been about people, places, and times, I think a a broader approach is what we would call the hermeneutical key. Hermeneutics is just a fancy way of speaking about interpretation. How do we interpret the book of Daniel? Well, our interpretive key here is going to step back and realize we're looking at something bigger than Seleucid, something bigger than Ptolemy, something bigger than Antiochus himself. Now, Seleucid, Ptolemy, and Antiochus all embody this to some degree or another, but that's not it. They are not the the final factor that we have to face. 
So what we're looking at here then is something that's moved from strict historical prophecy to a generalized reminder of what happens in human history. What is the war that we're fighting? What is the battle that we face? What is the true enemy that we have to deal with? That's what Daniel is driving at. And so this reminds us that evil is in the world and we have to contend with it. Evil is present now and we have to contend with it. But, but, and there is a but here, but God is in control, and by the power of His grace and mercy, believe it or not, He puts limitations on what evil can and cannot do. In fact, that is why, and we'll cover this here in just a moment, in the very first verse of this paragraph in verse 36, He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. There it is again. <laughs> what is decreed shall be done. So it's telling us right off the bat, this is major, this is big, we're dealing with evil, but even it is confined by God. And that is important for us to keep straight in our minds because it is easy, it becomes easy in our world to look at what's happening or to read here and choose to despair. We could easily go there. We could go the pathway of despair if we forget that God is indeed, is indeed in control, that God is limiting, that God is reigning, that God is overseeing. And so, Scripture reminds us of something that we have to keep straight in our minds, that evil is not the only force and will at work in the world. Evil is not the only force and will at work in the world. Something far greater than evil is at work in your heart in this room, in this worship service, in our world. And that, that being, God is moving us to a very particular end, the end of His glory, the end of our full and final restoration. As we know, we think about the paradigm. We live in God's creation. We see the created world, and we know that immediately after the creation that we were fallen, our first parents fell. What does that remind us of? Well, it reminds us that we need to be redeemed, that the redemption of the Lord, so you have the creation, you have the fall, you have the redemption in Christ that's promised in Genesis 3, right, during in the midst of the fall. And the final key to that paradigm is restoration. Once we're redeemed in Christ, what are we, what are we doing here? We are, live, we are living in a time of Christ waiting to consummate, consummate His kingdom as we await and watch so there's a present restoration happening, and there's a future restoration that's coming as we see the gospel claim victory along the way. Beloved, that's hopeful. Even in the midst of an evil age, that's the hope that we have as Christians. Now, a main complexity of Daniel 11 is that in some sense, Daniel is kind of making references to Antiochus IV as an example of evil, but clearly pointing beyond him. So there are things that he says here that are not true of Antiochus IV. And so we know that he's got him as a paradigm. It's kind of like this. He's dealing with evil, and he's saying, yeah, we know how Antiochus is kind of like this. Well, but this one is worse than him. He's using it as a reference, using him as a reference, but not saying that he is the fulfillment of the final vision or the final paragraph of this vision. So when we, when we look at Antiochus IV, he was a scourge to Israel. We can say that historically. He was that. He was evil. He was wicked. But he was merely an iteration of a more terrible scourge in the world. To use New Testament language, as I said a while ago, Antiochus IV was an Antichrist, 
but he was not the Antichrist. And as we remember, as we talked about, I gave a little excursus into Ephesians. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle with powers and principalities. We wrestle with the kingdom of darkness that is at work in the world. And beloved of God, when we see that clearly, it begins to change how we deal with the people whom we would even call our quote-unquote enemies. When I recognize that I'm wrestling with a, a philosophy, an ideology of the kingdom of darkness, I'm wrestling not with this person but with ideas and principles, it liberates me to not look down on them because they are created in the image of God. It liberates me to be charitable and kind and forgiving and gracious because they are made in the image of God. I don't fulfill that well. I'm still learning like we all are. But, beloved, that's what it means when we're made in the, cre- in the image of God. That's how we should be interacting with people. So with th- those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want, for us to, I want for us to see from the text, and it's this, that the ultimate scourge we face is spiritual. The ultimate scourge we face is spiritual. So this morning, as, we're, as Daniel is wrapping up chapter 11, and he's going to kind of get into this a little bit more in chapter 12, he's kind of given us what is the final scourge. The thing that, that all of chapter 11 has been pointing to was not necessarily the kingdoms themselves, although we saw that history was predicted, but it's this final scourge that we have to deal with, the one that we're constantly involved with, the battle that we constantly have to fight. And so when we think about it that way, we understand that tyrants and and world powers are simply iterations of the true power we face. Again, I would point us back to Ephesians chapter 6. Paul so clearly demonstrates that the fight that we wage is spiritual in nature, that the fight that we fight is spiritual in nature. Well, as Daniel begins to lead in here, He starts with familiar language, and the king shall do as he wills. Now, we've seen that phrase before, actually, at least with Alexander the Great and with Nebuchadnezzar. So, some sense, you see a continuation of a mindset, right, of of a, a state of mind or a state of heart. Now, the problem here is it's so tempting to look at, let your eyes drift up to verse 35 and assume that verse 36 is a continuation, that he's talking about the same king. And if that were true, he would be talking about Antiochus IV. But that is not the case. There is in some sense a sense of finality at verse 35 where we can read it by the way that the paragraph marks itself out, especially in the Hebrew Bible. You get a sense of you're stopping here and you're starting something new. Not a new vision per se, but you're transitioning from one subject to a new subject. And so the king here, and we're going to see this for other reasons, is not talking about Antiochus the fourth. Now, how, but why would we say that he's using Antiochus as kind of an example? Well, because Antiochus did kind of do as he wills. Antiochus did exalt himself and magnify himself. I mean, he called himself Epiphanes, the idea, an appearance of God. And so we understand that Daniel kind of has this framework, but he's speaking about someone who far outstrips Antiochus, as we're going to see in a moment. We're told here that he does as he wills. He magnifies himself above every god. He speaks astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. Now, so as he does as he wills, this is not unique to this king. It's been said before. But he exalts himself. He proclaims his own deity. Now you're looking at something that goes beyond, hey, I'm just a king. I get to do what I want to do. 
I am now putting myself in the place of God, very consistent with the great enemy of our soul. This is exactly how Satan is portrayed, the Antichrist is portrayed in the book of Revelation and how he's portrayed throughout Scripture. So he exalts self. How is he identified here? Well, he exalts himself and he wages war. As we read through the different verses of this particular paragraph, that is what we always come back back around to, that he is exalting himself and he's waging war. Now, again, you say, well, yeah, that sounds very consistent with what we've heard in Daniel 11, and it is. Now, it's just to a far greater degree. And it says he speaks astonishing things. Think of blasphemy there, not, not amazing things, so per se, but blasphemous things. He speaks blasphemous. So when he's doing that, he's speaking falsely about God. He's speaking falsely about himself. It's not merely blasphemy to speak against God. It's also blasphemy to put ourselves in the place of God, to speak of ourselves as if we are our own God, to speak of ourselves as if we need no God. That is why the Psalms call the man who says there is no God a fool. In the strict biblical sense of the word, one who knows truth and yet denies it. That is what it means to be a fool. That's what it means to be in folly. Because we know better than to say that there is no God. Paul says in Romans 1 that because of the created order itself, we are without excuse. And so he speaks these blasphemous things. He speaks falsely of God and himself, but do you know this is not just a a problem relegated to the great enemy of our soul. This is a human problem. How often do we think more highly of ourselves than we all? And you know why we do it? Because of sin in our hearts, because of sin in the world, because we like to be thought of as servants, but we never like to be treated as one because we think We deserve better. We deserve more. So the type of entitlement that this is talking about, it should ring a note of truth with us because it hits close to the mark of our own hearts. That is why the appeal in this way is so effective because it appeals to something within our own souls that we have and desires that we cultivate and things that we cherish. So he's blasphemous. He speaks falsely. But I love how right on the front end, he says, he shall prosper until the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. In other words, this picture of the Antichrist being coming is still subject to the will of God. That despite all these things, despite his seeming victories, despite his Wealth, despite his power, despite his war, he is still subject to the same indignation that the world is subject to. He is still set for a decreed end that the world is set for. So he, he owns no special spot in history, powerful though he is, he is subject to judgment. And beloved, we have to take comfort in that. Because it's so easy to look at evil around us and just uh, despair, I said a while ago, become depressed, become ambivalent, become indifferent, because it feels like it's never going to change, while Scripture says, hang on, persevere, stay strong, walk in my strength, walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh, because an end is surely coming. I mean, that's what gives martyrs the strength to lay down their lives. That's what gives people the strength to endure persecution, to serve 
with humility and charity and grace because we understand that justice will come. Even godless philosophers know that. I remember studying Immanuel Kant, who was no friend to biblical Christianity, but even Kant reasoned that, of course, there is a God because of the innate sense of justice that we have in our hearts. Where does that come from? The idea that things will be made right is, so, is such a natural thought process that Kant even said we can reason our way back to God, but I digress. So when we think about what's going on here, verse 36 and then verse 37, he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers. See, that does not aptly describe Antiochus IV or to the one beloved by women. He shall, pay, he shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. Now you're getting in some specifics. So that's how we begin to see that Antiochus might be a picture here, but he is not the person talked about here. We're talking about somebody bigger. He's not the final fulfillment. We're getting a glimpse of the final enemy. Verse 38, he shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. This idea here, this God of fortresses, actually is very ambiguous. Uh, not a lot of known is about that phrase. Typically, that phrase, especially in Hebrew, would often indicate war. So the God of fortresses was, would be like this, that he shall honor war instead of these. And that would be the former gods. So what we're talking about here is, he is this, this being is unique. He's not common. He's not like his fathers. He's not the one that's, that the women would recognize, the gods whom they beloved. He doesn't honor them. He's, he's unique. He stands out, and he's meant to. He's exalted over all because he exalts himself over all. He places himself in the seat of greatness. He proclaims it himself. We won't turn there, but if you go to Revelation 12 and you have the, the dragon who has his own image and, and raises up images to worship so that the dragon can be the center of worship, which is Satan, you can kind of see some correlation, some parallels here, that we're dealing with something that is taking worship for itself that does not deserve it, that is assuming power for itself that though is powerful, is still a derived power and is subject to the judgment of God. So why do these books remain hopeful for us despite the fact that what they're telling us is chilling? Because he is subject to the judgment of God. And that is where apocalyptic literature helps us to remain hopeful. So he's, a, he's, a, he's one who is committed to war. He's committed to violence. It speaks of the, the gold and silver and the treasures. He's got power and money. He's got everything that people in the world desire, the power and the finances, the wealth and the war, all these things, to be able to stand on, my, on our own and be independent. That is in the heart of human beings. What, is, what does he have? He has what appeals to the deepest longings of humans, to have the resources and the strength to do what I want to do. Riches and power. It's often how Satan sells his message. And this one embodies these things. Of course he does. He's a king. He's kingly. He has all the stuff that can make life easy, can make life, quote-unquote, good, that can make life, quote-unquote, fun, that can make life, quote-unquote, worth it, that gives us the capacity to live in the pleasure that our hearts desire. 
And so you can see that if you're not rooted in the truth of God, how appealing those things are. Who of us wouldn't like a little more money in our bank account to be a little stronger emotionally, physically, spiritually, to have what we want when we want it, the way we want it, without having to go through hoops? Of course, that appeals to the human heart. That is why this message is sold so easily. Verse 39, he shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Or maybe as payment, depending on how you understand the word there. Um, So he's got strength. He's got wealth. He's on display. He's able to lure people by means of this strength and wealth. And we get this familiar image, like so verse 40, it transi- transitions right into verse 40, and we get the familiar imagery of at the time of the end. Again, remember when we talked about the theology of time? Here it is again. You have, this is on a set schedule. This is on God's calendar. This is happening the way that God is, has decreed it. At the time of the end, the king of the south, south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. That overthrow and pass through, it's really imagery of a river. So he's going to come through like a raging river. Think of how a raging river will just wash everything out. That is how this one is going to come through. Strength, wealth, there's constant war. What is this 39 and 40 are driving at? The constant war. Why? Because within the human heart, evil prevails. Within the hearts of humanity on the earth, in the hearts of those under the sun, as Ecclesiastes would state it, evil prevails. But you know why this is here? Well, I mean, it's here because God put it here, but let me tell you what it's doing. It's telling us something very specific. Aside from the fact that he's using war imagery, aside from the fact that he's talking about the, the riches and the wealth and the power that evil has, he is telling us something deep and spiritually true, that our hearts need something much deeper than money, much deeper than power. In other words, you and I don't need to be strong. We need Christ. We don't need more money. We need Jesus. We need something that money and power cannot give to us salvation, a renewed heart, so that we can, as Paul would say, become new creatures, because only in that new creation, as new creatures, can we live out the precepts and principles that God is calling us to live. And all the money and power in the world doesn't change a thing if we, have no, if we don't have Christ. And so when we look at this, yes, it's getting to the very heart of man, because The evil one is going to appeal to the baser things of our nature, the things that are easy, the low-hanging fruit that we can just reach out and take. But Christ is calling us to a more excellent way, and it's a way that we cannot get to without Him. He's calling us to reach above, to stand above all the things of this world, not not to abandon it, to live in it, but to live in it for Him. And beloved, that's only when peace shall reign justice be made right and hurts healed is only going to happen when Christ is ruling from the hearts of His people and pressing us on towards the, on the pathway of righteousness. And so even as ambiguous as this, as complex as it may be, at the very least we can look at it and say the Bible is telling us that Jesus had to come because the evil at work in Daniel 11 is not going to be remedied by an invading army. 
There is no army that can stop the evil at work in these people. It's going to take the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the true God to do that. So we're being shown here this deep, real reality. So chariots and horsemen and many ships shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fail, fall rather, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Ammonites. The glorious land here is talking about the people of God. Certainly he's talking about Israel as a, as a nation, but think more metaphorically in trying to get at he's going to come against the people of God. So as he comes into the glorious land, he's coming to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That's the idea. He's coming to the people of God, and it says that for a time they stumble. What is stumble getting at? It's getting at death and persecution. It's making clear that the people of God do not get out of this unscathed. It's not as if God lifts us from the hardship and places us at a safe distance while the world crumbles. No, beloved, we have to live in it. Now, has God sealed his people? Yes. Does God protect his people from final judgment? Yes. Are God's people constantly the subject of persecution and hardship and trial and turmoil? Yes. And that does not indicate that God doesn't love us or that we are not sealed. It indicates that we live in a tumultuous world where judgment is coming and judgment is happening and evil is real and present. It is a real and present danger that we deal with. But look at what he says. He says he preserves um, Moab, some parts of the Ammonites, and Edom. Why? Well, historically, those were enemies of Israel. So what are we getting at here? What, what, what does he mean by the preservation of these specific countries? Well, he's showing us that he preserves the enemies of God for a time. Why? To maximize destruction. So that the people of God are genuinely caught between the hammer and the anvil. We can see the evil at work here. It's almost as if he's kind of uniting all the enemies of God with one another so that he can truly come in force and bring destru- destruction. And he, he brings swift devastation, we're told. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Why Egypt? Why mention that? Well, Egypt was big, it was rich. And even so, even Egypt shall not escape from him. Think of it that way. He plunders. He rules. This one rules for his own glory and for his own name's sake. That's what it says in verse 43. It should become ruler of the treasuries or the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train, we're told. He rules for his own glory, his own name's sake. What, is, what do we know about this one? Beloved, what Daniel is telling us, he's counterfeit. He's counterfeit. It runs counter to what we heard from Jesus when he walked the earth. I did not come to be served, Jesus said, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Beloved, when we take that truth about Jesus and we hold it up against this king mentioned in Daniel 11, we begin to see the way that God's paradigm takes everything that we think is true uh, as human beings and flips it on its head. Oh, do you want to preserve your life? Well, then you lay it down. 
Do you want to be thought of as great in the kingdom of heaven? Then you become as the least. Do you want to be exalted in the kingdom of heaven? Then you humble yourself. Do you want your life to have purpose and meaning and value? Then you give it away. You see, it's the very message of truth that flips the world philosophy on its head that runs counter to this king and that magnifies who Jesus is. And so that when we're looking at this, we're saying, yes, Messiah has to come. Messiah has to come. Messiah has to come because if he does not, this will run rampant and rule the world and cover it with darkness. That's why I love the prologue of John that we went through not so long ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with Him in the beginning. And He begins to display the light of Christ that had to come to the world. Why? Because Daniel 11 is in our Bible, and we see what happens when Christ is absent. And beloved, lest we think that this is merely out there away from us, we don't have to contend with this. In a small way, we're looking at the heart of man without Christ. So why do we think that it's the gospel that's going to incure or that's going to cure injustice and bring unity? Because only the gospel can do that. If it doesn't, we will embrace injustice and all the lack of peace in our world because we will not be compelled to lay our lives down in an attempt to try to preserve them in the way that we think is best. Yes, the gospel message is counter to what our world says. Verse 43 makes it clear that he shall become ruler, and even the Libyans and the Cushites will literally submit to him. Following his train is a, is a good idea for the phrase, but the idea there is submit. Uh, what are we looking at here? He's, he looks indestructible. Uh, the world powers are, are just submitting to him left and right. He's amassing an army that feels insurmountable. He's amassing a, a strategy of attack that feels unbeatable. That's his point. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to intimidate. But you see, we have the truth. News from the east and the north shall alarm him, and she, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So we have here a picture of great wrath as he rages against God, as he rages against the people of God. So the nations, this is the nations now raging against God. And he will seek to, dis to, to cover earth in destruction. Do you know what the best picture I can, I can uh, compare this to is? Is sin. Well, this is exactly what sin does, you see. It comes with lies. It comes with false promises. It comes offering something that sounds good in the moment, but it doesn't tell you how much it's going to cost you on the back end. It doesn't tell you that ultimately it is your soul that it requires. And what does sin do? It's pervasive. It covers and it taints. It kills, it subverts, it deceives, all the while making you think you're free and in control, but in the end when the trap door slaps, you understand I'm caught. This is a picture of what sin does in the world. This is why I again come back to again and again and again and again why we need Jesus to come, 
why this very morning we need Jesus. Because what does sin do? Like here, it cultivates despair. It sets itself against God and its people while offering something that it cannot give. And sin and those doing evil here, they want to destroy everything. They want to burn it down and leave nothing. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters, there's one where one of the senior demons is corresponding with one of the junior demons, and he says in there that these patients, which he calls people, are food to be consumed. And he spoke so truly in that moment. That is exactly what evil and sin want to do, to consume us as food, to destroy everything. So I ask the question that I constantly come back to, what are we to do? Uh, what is our hope? Uh, how, do we, how do we respond to, to, to the seeming devastation and to the real devastation? What do we do? Well, despair can't be our response, primarily because God is in control. That may not feel very comforting to you in this moment. I don't know what battles you might be facing this morning. And me saying, well, beloved, God is in control might not be very comforting to you this morning, but tuck it away. Allow that truth to ruminate, to percolate in your mind and in your heart because that is the only thing that can bring us comfort when evil is so rampant, is to know that there is another force and will at work in the world, and it is not evil. It is beautiful. It's true. It's good. It's righteous. And while I may have to walk through the thorns for a moment, the thorns are not eternal. While I may have to get pressed in the crucible for a moment, that crucible is not eternal. It is moving us to a more glorious end. Evil does flourish for a moment, but God is storing up judgment. As devastating as this sounds, God's wrath is more powerful than the evil at work in the world. I don't relish in the wrath of God. I don't think anybody should, but the wrath of God is real. It's true. And why, why do we care about the wrath of God because it is the wrath of God that will ultimately destroy the last vestiges of sin and evil and bring righteousness. So we don't cherish people deserve or people getting the wrath of God. No, we weep. But we also praise the Lord that his wrath is bigger than the evil at work in our world. We praise the Lord that his kingdom will come, his righteousness will be established will be, not maybe. It will be established. As a final note, verse 45, he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. How do we know that Antio this is not about Antiochus? That doesn't describe Antiochus. Antiochus was killed in about 164 a or BC rather in a very minor battle with a, a Persian army. He kind of died a, a very normal, non-notable death. These palatial tents, again, kind of noted his, the, rich, the riches of this one. Between the seas and the holy mountain, the holy mountain being another allusion here to the people of God, of course, think Mount Sinai, but an allusion here to the people of God. What, what does he mean by that, pitching his tents between the seas and the, and the holy mountain? Well, creating an obstacle for the people of God, hindering the people of God, constantly putting up 
obstacles and hindrances for the people of God to fall. And through temptation and fear, He will seek to rule God's people. He'll seek to rule the whole earth through temptation and fear. But beloved, here's the hope that we have in Jesus as He fails. Do we stumble and fall? Yeah. Do we make poor choices from time to time? Absolutely. Do we give in to the whispers of Satan and believe some of the things he says? Yeah. I'm sure we all struggle with that. But what is this text telling us? That that is not the ultimate end for the people of God? That though, though we have bitter nights of the soul, a day is coming for all the saints, but lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day, the saints triumphant rise in bright array. The King of glory passes on His way. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. What a powerful, powerful line to tuck away and remember. That's exactly what Daniel is saying. We are the church militant today, but beloved, a day is coming when we are the church triumphant where we shed the last vestiges of this world and we put on the new resurrection bodies and we stand with Christ in perfect righteousness, never to weep again, never to sin again, never to hurt or be hurt again, never to despair or be depressed or be anxious ever again because we are the church triumphant. I long for those days His end comes. It says, yet he shall come to his end. Tattoo that on your arm somewhere so you can look at that constantly. Not, not really. I mean, if you want to, fine. But that's not a direct command from the pulpit. I just want to make that clear. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. No greater words can be spoken. His end comes. Why? Because Yahweh reigns. Because Jesus reigns. And so, beloved, when we think about Jesus, we think about Yahweh. Jesus was scourged, literally scourged, beaten with that whip into a a mess that we would not dare even want to look at. He was scourged that we might have victory over the scourge of Satan and his minions. The fight against sin and Satan, it does feel hopeless sometimes. I, I admit I despair from time to time thinking I'm never going to get out of this cycle. It seems as if we will never mortify sin and evil in our minds and bodies. And we've already, when we start going down that road, we've already bought into a lie. Because if you're in this room this morning and you call Christ Lord, do you know what Paul says about you? You're a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Beloved, may we, can we pray for each other and stand firm on that truth when Satan starts whispering about how we are and how awful we are and how terrible we are and, you know, you're, you, how could you claim to love Jesus and do this? Beloved of God, yeah, his accusations are sometimes are not far off from the truth, but the, the, the truth that's more truth than that is that we are new creations in Christ. Jesus came and fought and destroyed the very evil that we could not conquer for the very purpose that we might be conquerors through His victory. Jesus conquered the very fight that we could not so that in Him we could be the conquerors that we weren't and stand on His victory for eternity. And that will be no less true when we've been in eternity in heaven with Him for myriads of years. Evil is hard. Evil is painful. 
Evil can and does bring fear to our hearts, but evil does not have the last word. It won't, it can't, it will never, because evil has been conquered by the gospel. Brad, what do you mean by that word, gospel? Glad you asked. It's the good news. God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. He became sin for us. He endured the wrath of God for us so that in him, that is in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So that we have his righteousness now because of his sacrifice for us. That is the gospel that conquers. So let the nations rage because our God is a strong tower. tower, And in him, in him, we are saved. Not we might be, not we can be, not it's possible, we are saved. And beloved, that is the truth that guides us through the tumultuous times that Daniel speaks about. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning. It's power, it's truth, it's depth, it is ambiguous, it's tough, it's a complex paragraph, but yet, Father, you call us to see the fight of our time, the fight of, our, uh, of the ages. So often we get so locked into something physical and it's not those things, it's completely spiritual. There are physical ramifications, of course, but Father, you've called us into a spiritual fight and the weapons that we use are not of this world. So, Father, may we wield the sword of your word with precision and grace and truth. May the belt of truth undergird us. May the breastplate of righteousness protect our hearts. May the helmet of salvation remind us whose we are. And may our feet be ready to go and proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because we have your character, we have you as our shield, Father, we are the victors. Thank you for the victory. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.